HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Cutting the Curd is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American international style and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country? For more information, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd live on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Greg Blaze. On the past couple of episodes, we've briefly touched upon some of the current events happening in the cheese world, speaking with Ann Saxelby, Benton Brown, and Peter Dixon about uncertainty in FDA regulation and what we as cheese professionals and cheese enthusiasts can do to maintain and promote traditional cheese-making methods in this country. On today's episode, I'm very excited to continue this conversation, along with other current events, with two distinguished cheese professionals, both of whom are on the line from Boston, Massachusetts. Stephanie Ciano, VP of Purchasing and Sales at World's Best Cheese, an importer and distributor of amazing cheeses and other specialty goods is on the line. How are you, Stephanie? Hi, very good. Good to be here, Greg. (laughs) Good to talk to you. I also have Cutting the Curd veteran Susan Sturman on the line. Sue is director of the Anglophone program at Academy Opus Caseus. She's also a cheese writer, educator, and co-chair of the American Cheese Society's 2015 conference in Providence. I know both you and Stephanie have been busy today working on conference panel proposals for next year, which we're due today. How are you doing today, Sue? I'm good. My fingers are sore from typing. Hey, Stephanie, how are you? Looking forward to seeing you in uh, Providence tomorrow morning. Definitely. Yep. Nice. Since both of you have your pulse on what's going on, not just domestically, but internationally, as far as the cheese industry goes, I first wanted to talk about some of these international current events in cheese. So, Sue, a relatively recent event in cheese related to the International Confederation of Cheesemongers. What is this organization, and what does it mean for the cheese industry and cheesemongers here in the United States? Well, this is kind of a cool project that um, started in Europe, um, it's been slowly getting underway for about a year now, um, and uh, I think it's got a lot of potential. Um, it's an organization that is has as its purpose being an umbrella organization to bring together and uh, and support the exchange of you know 
hard and fast information about cheesemongering um, among all of the various ACS-type organizations in the world. Um, there aren't very many of us, but the other um, motive behind the ICC is to encourage other countries or other regions to develop their own national or regional um, associations supporting cheesemongering. When did it begin? Um, I guess the brainchild was a couple of years ago. Um, I got involved because when they were writing their statutes, their sort of um, rough draft of their their guiding principles and, and uh, bylaws, um, they needed someone to translate them into English. So I was... So you were available you know, for that. <laughs> I was kind of available I, through my network in France. They they knew me and knew that I do a lot of you know cheesy translations. <laughs> you do a lot of cheesy translations. You're very good at that. Um, but so how is that? How are we going to work with those guys? How are they? They're gonna they're gonna work with the ACS or are they? Yeah. Gonna... Well, people can be individual members, but the voting members are these um, national organizations. So in the United States. Um, the voting member is the ACS, and the ACS has joined. Um, in fact, there was a meeting of members of the ACS board and the um, the president and the vice president of the ICC oh, at really conference cool. this year. Um, and and um, the kickoff meeting was at Bra just about a year ago. Um, there was a kickoff meeting, and then there was another meeting um, in January at the Salon de Fromage in Paris. So they will, they're, they're planning to try and get together, you know, have gatherings, in-person gatherings at various events in different places of the world where people already are. But a lot of this is going to have to be sort of virtual work. Um, you know, on a, they've just put up a website, which is um, beautiful. There's not much there yet, but, you know, these things take time. Um, it's yeah, being do. constructed. And... Um, uh, so the ACS will, you know, is a member and uh, will have a vote. But as I understand it, individuals, you know, will also be able to to join. But the their member ACS members are members through the ACS. Cool. I mean, that sounds like a great thing. I I like uh, many. I like confederations. I like the word confederation. Yeah. Somehow, it's a it's a good one. So you don't do you have to be a member of the ACS to join? I just wanted to ask you one more thing about it. Um. I'm not sure that that's entirely set down in stone yet. Like, I don't think there's a way to join yet for individuals. So stay tuned. I will. (laughs) I'm not on the board, so I don't, you know. Some of this is actually still in process because the way that uh, the organization is is going to evolve is with the voice of the member organization. Well, that's what I was wondering. Happening over time. So, so uh, are they? You're going to you're going to use this, or not you, but one? All of the organizations worldwide are going to use this as a platform to support uh, cheese making, cheese mongering. uh, To band together, uh, so we all know what we're uh, up against as far as. Anything we need to be up against is that the is that absolutely the... absolutely it's 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 a cheesemongers confederation so it's a, it's it's about mongering not it doesn't reunite cheesemakers this is just mongers know, more limited but you know cheese making things like um, the ICC weighed in with translations of some French documentation on um, the safety of using wood in affinage um, and in cheesemaking. So they submitted that to the to the to the FDA, 
and shared it with the ACS. Um, so that kind of real documentation exchange is really, really valuable, and they're doing that. Um, um, Anything that promotes, for me, uh, cross, I guess cross-pollination of cheesemongers internationally is a cool thing for me because here in the United States, we're starting to get this sort of culture of cheesemongering, which we've, we've had, but it's grown. So um, any, cro- any like, bleeding over of that would be really cool for someone like me. I think that's why I was interested in it in the first yeah. place. Well, another thing that you know, is, is near and dear to the hearts of cheesemongers worldwide are tariffs and trade barriers. Yeah, that's very um, true. So that's another thing that, you know, the the ICC can gather research, gather voices, and represent people in many different countries, um, and having a voice with regulata- regulators, whether it be on this side of the Atlantic or whether it be the European Union or, you know, elsewhere in the world. That's a very interesting point, and um, it actually leads me into another question. And uh, Stephanie, I was wondering if you could uh, handle this one for me or give me some sure. insight. Um, you know, recently uh, Russia has, uh, you know, in retaliation for EU sanctions, they banned many European food imports, including cheese. I recently read an article about how Italian Parmigiano Reggiano was making it into Russia via Belarus, where all labeling was changed to Parmigiano Belarusano. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering what your thoughts about the effects of the embargo on the European cheese industry were, um, as well as on other countries around the world, to shift gears a tiny bit. Well, it's definitely um, highly illegal to be playing with the names on the DOP cheeses um, and putting the kind of a black market for, for those products out there. And that's something that, you know, the Italian... Um, the government and the Italian officials would be trying to clamp down on something like that, you know, if they're um, sending product in illegally. And, you know, we've seen the same thing here in the United States before with the Roquefort ban where they put, um, you know, up to 200% duty on Roquefort. I've seen that happen more than once. Yeah. I feel like it's happening right now as well, right? There's been... um, Penal um, penalties, basically enforced by the government, in the forms of duties and sanctions of not allow- allowing products. And you know, we've seen that over the um, the beef ban that Europe wasn't allowing um, beef in from the United States, and in retaliation, the United States had stopped bringing in French products. That was a number of years ago. And for anyone who doesn't know Stephanie, you know her anyway, because if you bought cheese in America, anyway, good cheese in America that's come from Italy or France or Spain, then you have been the beneficiary of Stephanie's hard work at Crystal Foods and WB. And um, I I know you have so much perspective on these kind of things. Uh, when I read recently an article about uh, the, the effect of um, – of these Russian embargoes on mm-hmm. production in French uh, French cheeses, that there was thousands and thousands of kilograms of cheese that they were slated to go out into uh, into uh, into Russia that are just sort of being held. And I was wondering if you um, or have you felt the effects of that? We actually have um, been feeling the effects of that. We've been getting offers from French suppliers um, on these products at discounts, trying to get them to be rerouted into the United States. Instead of going to Russia, you know, they've made offers at um, extreme discounts, and they've offered to change the labeling because they were slated to go to the Russian market, and the product is already produced and sitting there 
Um, you know, so they're looking to, to vet the product out to other areas. That's what I figured. I mean, the the thing about production and distribution, which I know that you know, especially with cheese, is that you you it's all a pre ordered basis. So they're not just people aren't just making cheese in the hopes that somebody buys it. They're basing it on you know on their on their previous sales and on their previous orders. So that just seems it seems to just cause. I mean, any food sanction, I you know obviously and sued could weigh in on this anytime. It, it just causes a huge problem anyway. But the the effects of it on like the logistics chain are just a nightmare. I mean, I'm at the end of that chain and I feel it. Uh, also, the quality gets affected by that so much. I, I feel it's just right. Tough to You'll deal end with. up with product that's a shorter shelf life than it would normally have because the product has already been produced longer for a longer time, and it ends up sitting and holding for a while, losing shelf life before they can find a new home for the product. And, and Stephanie, isn't there another? There's also another issue of where it's being held. I mean, if it's being held at the producers, there's a good chance that it's being cared for properly. But if it's being held somewhere, you know, if FDA is putting a hold on it somewhere, on an imported cheese that's already sitting on a loading dock somewhere in this country, um, you know, that's way more problematic. Um, I don't know if you have anything to say about that. But it, that, that cheese isn't even that cheese has already been produced. I would imagine the, what we were talking yeah. about. Right. Yeah, I mean the product that with the Russian embargo specifically, you know, there's product that's already produced, and it appears that it's sitting at the producers um, with the product that I've been offered. Um, you know, so it's still where it's being made. So, you know, it seems like it probably is being cared for. You know, we do have those situations that come up um, with the FDA on holds of product that's already within the United States. If it has to get rerouted, then there are questions of how the product's been handled during the time when it's been held. Sue, Sue do you teach, uh, and this is just a, a question that just came to my mind now, do you teach um, people at the academy in, in cheesemongering how to, uh, how to deal with situations like that? Well, we don't we have, we don't at the moment have a specific curriculum on problem you know troubleshooting. We do teach affinage. We do teach um, when when people are you know doing the hands-on work at the academy. Um, you know, we treat, teach them about triage. You know, to observe the cheese and look at what condition it's in and make some in, informed, intelligent decisions about what to do with it when it gets to you. So to a certain extent, yes, but not not explicitly in terms of, you know, FDA holds or anything like that. You got to do a lot of triage work as a cheesemonger. I can uh, I can vouch for that. Most uh, most everything is triage because uh, the cold chain gets broken so often. Everything gets gets cluttered and botched up. I um, I just uh, I had been reading about this so much, so I thought it was it was it was interesting to me. Uh, I also wanted to bring up another um, international. Um, <clears throat> issue or a, or a topic, and that is industrialization. Um, as our cheese culture matures in the United States, it affects us a little bit more because as cheese markets expand abroad, I'm, I'm seeing cheeses come in with different additives and preservatives, which may or may not be properly labeled. And as demand increases for well-known name-protected cheeses, what are the repercussions for us as cheese professionals and cheese consumers when all of this industrialization happens? I think either of you. 
Well, I think well, that it happens in in a couple different ways. Um, you know, some of the some of the um, DOPs and the AOPs have different regulations for for how their cheese is produced, and you have some that are very strict that it needs to be done within a certain territory, only you know raw milk and produced in a certain way, and then they have others that are a little more vaguely written that opens the door up a little for for the industrial production of those products. Um, you know, and we've definitely seen that within our industry. You know, Manchego is a very good example of that where you have, you know, widely mass-produced products that fall um, within within the DOP um, regulations for Manchego. But something's added into Manchego sometimes, something that's, oh, that's, that's, that's vaguely associated with eggs, Correct. Um, they they can add that. Um, it's not too common with um, manchego, but there are a lot of other, um, like say, mass-produced goat cheeses in Spain that do use that, um, and also like uh, goat milk goudas coming out of Holland. That's the lysozyme, and it's a yeah. mold preventative. Um, with manchegos, I tend to see um, like a potassium sorbate in the rind, or you also get natamycin that's included in the rind as a mold preventative. And that has an effect. I mean, you, you get people's allergies come into play with stuff like that, don't they? Right, absolutely. You know, definitely with the egg white, that's a big issue that it needs to be added on the label as an ingredient. Um, you know, and a lot of times with the European labeling, they have um, different code words for what these additives are, you know, an E250 or E205. You know, in the United States, those don't mean anything to the to the average consumer. You know, where in Europe it, it um, is tied up with one of the additives, you know, that could very well be an allergen. And I feel like labeling is a massive issue these days. I I really do. Um, you know, back to well, labeling. The- you know, labeling is different from as Stephanie said. Um, labeling is slightly different from country to country. There are slightly different laws um, given the context. You know, labeling in the United States requires allergens to be stated. That's not a requirement in France because it's just not the same level of issue. There aren't as many people who are allergic for whatever reason. Um, it's not as much of an issue, so that's not a requirement. Um, so there there are cultural differences, and that's not because they don't care. It's because it's... No, I don't think it is. Um, and it, But then, you know, the other thing is that, you know, it, it's sort of a chasing your tail, you know, labeling and, and, I mean, having the DOPs and the PDOs is these defined cheeses um, is is a good thing. It's a little bit of a golden handcuffs for the producers because they're, they can't be inventive with anything. They have to stay very strictly, well, more or less strictly, as Stephanie said, to, to, to the rules. But it does ensure a certain product identity, and that's a good thing. Um, it, on the other hand, um, it, it, labeling laws can be very, cons- you know, constrained. Certainly for for cheesemongers, 
it's a pain in the neck because there's small cheeses just don't have a lot of surface area to put labels no, they don't. on them. <laughs> and, True. And, you know, like, no, they don't. Where do I put this stuff? I've got seven ingredients and only three centimeters. But, <laughs> um, but, uh, that is a it, funny but true cheesemonger. Yeah, really... I just got a translation last week on something that a, one of the products I carried had black carrot juice in it. <sighs> And it was a product from France, and it was actually referring to beet juice, and it was just a poor translation. Yeah. Gotta love those black carrots. Those are the tastiest <laughs> carrots of all. Yeah. <laughs> but until we're all, like, really honest and people aren't doing bad stuff to good food, we're going to need those labels because they're yeah. our protection. And, you know, label, labeling laws have existed for a very long time. This is not anything new. People have been adulterating food for hundreds of years. That's true. But I feel as though as a cheesemonger, it's come up more and more. I just stopped being able to get certain cheeses from Europe simply because of the labeling. And uh, I, that stuff, you used to be able to slide by with that stuff. I, I know it for a fact because we right. I've just been buying cheese, but it, but it, it, yeah, people have been adulterating food since well, since forever. But right, been, that's yeah. what we, I mean. We've seen that a lot in the last ten years. That there's been a big increase with the FDA stopping goods because the the labels are not adequate, and it could be the font size is too small. It could be the Nutrifax panel isn't in the U.S. format. You know, it could be the ingredient statement isn't in the format that they would like. You know, it can be for any numerous amount of reasons, and, you know, sometimes they can be more lenient than others where they might release the item, you know, stating that, you know, that there's a labeling issue there, and the next time the product comes in, it's not going to get released, that the, that, um, the labeling needs to be fixed. You know, and some of these issues, you know, typefaces on fonts seem like they're really picayune and, and you know, oh, God, you know, Let's get real. But but I think it's more complex than that, and I don't want people to dismiss things out of hand because it is actually not so easy to figure out where to draw a line on things sometimes. And if a typeface is too small and it's not readable, okay, you've got the information there, but it's not accessible to the public. So, you know, there's some, there is, we may not like it, we may not be comfortable with it, we may be frustrated by it, but I think a lot of the time there actually is some reason behind the rules and and what we tend to just get lost in the you know lost in the in the detail well they should just use less ingredients we're going to have to we're going <laughs> to have to take a short break i, mean, I think the ones that i find unfortunately that that are the most affected by the more stringent laws are the smaller producers yeah, you know of course. The, the bigger producers yeah. don't have any problem to make the adequate labels because they're producing big volumes of the products and you know have the money to to afford to make the labels and it ends up and being the money the for the labels for the lobbying struggle too. to meet the guidelines all right gals we'll be right back i'm going to take a short break but we're happy to be talking to stephanie and Stu. take care
The dairy farm families of Wisconsin and the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board are proud to underwrite Cutting the Curd on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Wisconsin cheeses have an illustrious heritage of more than 170 years of quality and craftsmanship. During this long and rich history, the art and science of cheesemaking have been captured in time-honored traditions that produce cheese varieties of unsurpassed excellence. Today, Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheeses that win more awards than any other state or country. To learn more, visit www.eatwisconsincheese.com. We're thrilled to announce a special event, the Silver Snail, 25 Years of Slow Food. This event is hosted by Slow Food USA, Heritage Radio Network, and Roberta's Pizza. It's been 25 years since Carlo Petrini and a group of activists launched a peaceful revolution to defend regional traditions, good food, gastronomic pleasure, and the slow pace of life. The slow food movement has since evolved into a comprehensive approach to food that recognizes strong connections between plate, planet, people, politics, and culture. Today, this movement involves thousands of projects and millions of people in more than 160 countries worldwide. Join us for a dialogue between Slow Foods founder Carlo Petrini and locavore activist Alice Waters as they reflect on the evolution of the food movement and all things slow. Friday, October 3rd from 11.30 to 2.30. You can go to our website and click on the link on the right-hand side of the page to RSVP. We can't wait to see you there. Hey, my name is Betsy Andrews, executive editor of Severa Magazine, and I am hanging out at the coolest, most delicious place in the world, heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. I'm so fortunate to have two rock stars of cheese with me today, Sue Sturman and Stephanie Ciano, talking with me about current events in cheese. In the first part of this episode, we focused mainly on European issues that are important to the cheese community. In this next part, we're going to hone in on the U.S. In the U.S. in particular, there seems to be a tension between science and tradition when it comes to regulatory issues. This is perhaps because we don't have a long tradition of making cheese in this country, as long as Europe. We want things to be sterile. Earlier this year, it was all about guidelines over aging on wood. And as I discussed a bit last week with Peter Dixon, an important topic right now is related to levels of non-toxigenic bacteria in raw milk cheese. So I was wondering if you ladies could opine on that for me. Sue? Well, non-toxigenic means it doesn't make you sick. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That's, That's sort of the basis of the issue. The FDA claims that if there is an elevated quote unquote, and that's where the the question is, what does elevated mean? What's the limit? Um, if there's an elevated level of non-toxigenic E. coli, what you have, their inference is that the environment where the cheese was made was not clean enough. So this is, and you know, what's clean and what is clean? What is acceptable levels? And this was the documentation that the ICC translated some, some basic scientific research from France and sent to the FDA and to the ACS, alphabet soup here, um, about, you know, that, that, that there are, Europe has higher tolerances and, and a lower incident of people getting sick. France has a lower incidence of people getting sick. 
So I always think that that's indicative, of, and and I'm I'm sure you agree with me. That's just indicative of the food culture here in general. And I mean, we right. we feed people things here. The the best things, the things that we support here most are things that aren't organic at all. Uh, they're they're deemed safe by the FDA, but they're not made up of real food. And I've always talked to people about this at the cheese counter when they ask me, you know, I'm, and they give me the time to open my mouth about it. It's it's just really it's really bothersome to me that you know that that, that that's what we deem safe uh, things that aren't alive. But well, we're a very know, black and white because culture. they allow things that are full of chemicals and additives and preservatives that that's no problem, you know. But then to have normal, healthy organisms in a product, those are the things that they're afraid of. And we know this, but I mean, are we going to be able to reverse that trend? Are we going to be able to get in the heads of the scientists and I guess the lobby in this country and get that it's reversed? Not, you know, I don't think it's so much the scientists that are the problem. I think it's the regulators. But we have, it's a question of control. Um, if, you know, if you, if you sterilize the milk or if you pasteurize the milk and you kill off all of the so-called unwanted, all of the Theoretically, in pasteurization, when you heat the milk to a certain, amount, certain temperature for a certain amount of time, you will kill off the pathogenic bacteria, not all of the bacteria, or not all of the flora in the milk, because it's not just bacteria. Um, and then what you have to do, if you want to make cheese from it, if you want to make good cheese from it, you have to add those elements back in that you want and leave out the ones that you don't yeah, want. Yeah, that's just backwards but, thinking to me. I mean... It's, yes. Well, that's... You know whether you. I'm a little less. And I know this. Put a judgment on it, but that's just what it is. That's the process. That's the thinking. It's about control and sanitation and not trusting Mother Nature. But are we? And I know this. I mean, and I've had this discussion. But what do we do to get around it? Not around it or through it. What do we do to get over it? Who who needs to be convinced and how? I mean, I think the FDA has their regulations, and it actually is um, 10%, you know, of what they allow is um, in comparison to what's allowed in Europe. In Europe, yeah. in Europe they'll allow 10 parts um, per 100 grams um, of a product to have the non-toxigenic E. coli, and in the United States, the level is 10 parts. Per hundred grams, so you can see there's a gross disparity there. Yeah, Peter spoke of that same ratio. I mean, it just seems like you yeah. can't make tasty cheese out of milk that doesn't have anything alive in it. I mean, yeah, and the the vendors, you know, basically have said it's not, you know, for raw milk cheese, it's practically impossible to pr- produce a product that has the, that can attain those levels, you know, because it's a normal, healthy part of of the cheese, um, you know. But it looks well, like, you know, from my I can see that the um, Cheese Importers Association in the United States and the ACS are both working on that and communicating openly with the FDA and trying to argue with science and facts, um, you know, about what's healthy and what's not, um, you know, that we're supportive, you know, of bringing in healthy products, um, you know, but it's where where do you def- put that definition? I know, and I didn't think, mean you to. You know, one of the things that's strengthening the ACS's voice, and it really has gotten a lot stronger this year, um, is, you know, the fact that we're 
that we're taking a stand. We're doing some self-regulation in terms of the CCP exam. That we're, you know, we're we're asking our own industry to have higher standards internally. Um, I think that the ICC, the you know, the coming together and bringing many voices from other cultures um, who have examined this together to, you know, to talk together, to share basic information, to share research. Um, I think that that's very valuable. Um, and um, I also um, think that it's it's just, um, oh, I lost my train of thought. It'll come back. That happens. That happens. Sorry. Well, it's it's okay. Um, I was actually I I have to say I, I shouldn't I, I feel bad I shouldn't have put a judgment on it like that. I just get very frustrated because I feel like I have this conversation a lot. I have it on the radio. I have it at the cheese counter. I have it uh, when I go to meet with people. So I it, I just I'm a, I'm bullheaded and I want to push through these things. Right. So you know that so that people can continue to do what they've been doing for thousands right. of years. So yeah. I get the well, same it's, way. It's I mean, I, I hit roadblocks every day as an importer. Um, with all the products that I have that are on FDA hold, you know, you're looking at probably a quarter of a million dollars at any given time that we've got on hold because of the um, regulations being upheld the way they are. And, you know, to get the, you know, we'll get the product released about a month later, but it's, you know, always you feel like you're hitting roadblocks constantly and trying to replace one um, DOP cheese <laughs> with a knockoff. Um, sure. Pasteurized, um, you know, which is kind of sad because it becomes a dumbing down, you know, uh, of the yeah. industry trying to meet the regulations. Hervé Mons has a has a vision for bringing us closer to not just raw milk but wild milk. Wild talking milk. about wild milk, le lait sauvage, because you know, if you ask cheesemakers all over the globe, more and more, including in France. Raw, raw milk just doesn't have enough in it. It's too clean. So mm. people are making raw milk cheese. Here's a dirty little secret. People are making raw milk cheese and having to add ferments, having to sure. inoculate raw milk because there's just, it's too clean. So what Hervé has been talking about for a couple of years now is getting back to wild milk, milk that really has tons and tons of flora just, you know, teeming with things alive in it. And that is truly, truly rare now. I like wild stuff. That's good that stuff. Sounds <laughs> fantastic, but it makes me a little scary because um, I think about how I have to work with the FDA, and I wouldn't like to hear their opinion on that. <laughs> Well, but it comes back to, I mean, this is the whole debate. I love this. It's the whole debate, and Greg, we should have a whole show just on this one narrow question of, you know, milk. Uh, but, we'll get but, there. You know, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I wanted to ask you ladies another question, and, uh, and it pertains to the United States. I wanted to ask you a question about upward, not upward mobility, but the ability to grow in the cheese business in the United States and how to retain talented people. And uh, I know both of you and I were veterans. We've been in the business for a while. But how do the young people, how do we get the youngsters to stay with us these days? And I'll take, um, I'll take any or either of your answers on that. I mean, I think, I it's, think the it's, young people um, want to stay. Yeah? Go ahead, Steph. Yeah, I think, honestly, the cheese industry really seems to be blossoming where, you know, where 
it's the whole idea of the cheesemonger as a rock star and having the respect um, of people in the industry and the, with the CCP um, exam that people are taking, they're being certified, um, you know, as a cheese professional. It's validating that this is something um, of merit that people should recognize, you know, the same way the wine in- industry had exploded years back. You know, I feel like the cheese industry is at that same level now where um, people are really getting jazzed and excited um, you know, about being a cheese professional and taking pride in it. Well, yeah, I would, I agree with that. There is a lot of pride in it, but is it a sustainable, you know, way to, to live? That's my, I guess that's my question. I, it, where do you grow from a cheesemonger? What do you grow into? Can you stay and be a cheesemonger for your whole career or for your, you know, for your life and so far as long as you want to do it? Is that possible? Yeah, well, I absolutely. think that people can open their own shops. There is so much, so much room for expansion of cheese shops. We do not have nearly enough cheese shops in this country. There are so many cities, small and medium cities, never mind the towns in this country, that have no cheese shop. And and they're, you know, I live in Brookline, Massachusetts. That's a nice Pretty town. major urban you know, fabulous, well-heeled town. We don't have our own specialty cheese shop. I've been asking my confreres in the business for years. Somebody come and open one here. All right, Italy, I'm done going back to Massachusetts. But, man, somebody open a cheese shop here. I got my hands full with my own business. (laughs) Um, Are you guys going to touch on that in in the ACS next year? Are you going to... Uh, we've got all sorts of things. We've got, I mean, they, they're still coming in today, and Stephanie and I both submitted a bunch of proposals over the weekend and today. Um, there are probably going to be about 60 or more proposals submitted for ACS, and in October there's a big selection committee meeting over two days in Denver that everyone will going, be going through all the submissions and vetting them against what's been requested at the past conferences, what's worked well, sorting out things that are too duplicative, looking for great speakers, new topics, interesting things. I think we've in coming coming in have been pretty good, pretty good. I think it's going to be a great conference. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to have to wrap it up with you, ladies. I had so many more questions, but you're so good. Um, we have to do a longer show with you both next time. But I wanted to thank you guys both for coming on, Sue Sturman and Stephanie Siano, to talk with me about some current events in cheese. And you guys are going to go home and rest your sore fingers now and uh, take a little bit of a <laughs> thank break. <you. laughs> Thanks so much My for pleasure. having me. You guys. I look forward to seeing you. I missed you at Italy last time I was in New York. Well, you better come back. I will. Take care. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye now. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.